Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the second online journal club for the journal Chest. My name is Divya Patel, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Florida. I'm joined today by my co-moderator, Viren Kowell, who is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Krauss Health and assistant professor of medicine at Upstate Medical University. Joining us today to review the article, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study to assess the safety and efficacy of pulsed inhaled nitric oxide at a dose of 30 micrograms per kilogram ideal body weight per hour in subjects at risk for pulmonary hypertension associated with pulmonary fibrosis receiving oxygen therapy are three of the authors of the paper, uh, including Dr. Stephen Nathan, who is a professor of medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University, and he's also the director of of the Advanced Lung Disease Program and the Lung Transplant Program at Ionova Fairfax Hospital. We also have join, joining us Dr. Lisa Lancaster, who's a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And uh, finally, Dr. Hunter Gillies, who's an exercise physiologist and chief medical officer of Bellerophon Therapeutics. And um, we're also lucky to have Dr. Sonia Danoff, who's our content liaison and subject matter expert She's an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital, and uh, she's also the co-director of the ILD clinic uh, at Johns Hopkins. So uh, before we start, uh, I want to just mention that Viren, Dr. Danoff, and I do not have any disclosures. The author disclosures are at the end of the paper uh, published uh, in Trust, and Dr. Gillies is an employee of the company sponsoring the trial. All right, so let's get started. Um, so first question I have is for Dr. Nathan. Dr. Nathan, how common is pulmonary hypertension in patients with fibrosing interstitial lung disease? It's actually uh, quite common, and it really depends when you look for it in terms of what the prevalence is. So if you look early on in the course of the disease, the estimates are anywhere from about 5 to 15%. Um, but if you look for it very late, for example, or later, for example, patients are listed for transplant, it's around 40%. Interestingly, at the time of transplant, uh, it's up to about 85%. So it seems like it's almost invariable that most, if not all patients, will develop some degree of pulmonary hypertension as their fibrotic lung disease progresses. Dr. Lancaster, um, why is it important for clinicians who take care of patients with interstitial lung disease to be cognizant of pulmonary hypertension? Why does it matter? Well, certainly it can affect their activities of daily living, uh, their endurance, uh, even their survival. So at this point, with no proven therapies for uh, PH that's related to fibrosing ILD, we tend to focus on just making sure patients aren't enough oxygen, treating sleep apnea if it's apparent, and ensuring that uh, we don't have any other uh, indication like autoimmune disease present. So Dr. Lancaster, you must have read my mind, or you know the next question that's coming up. But <laughs> what I wanted to know is that besides optimizing comorbidities, right? So sleep apnea, potentially volume of overload, heart failure. What, there, there are no other really actionable therapies for pH related to fibros and ILTs. Is that correct? Would, or would you think that there are some other treatment targets no, that we should I, be thinking about? It, that's correct. There's been uh, studies looking at the potential for other therapies that just haven't panned out. Some secondary endpoints were hit in the step trial with shortness of breath, but it didn't meet its primary endpoint either. So I think that's why this particular study is important and novel in that respect, because we're looking at the possibility of uh, moving forward with uh, a phase three study um, to really explore this as a possible first therapy for uh, fibrosing ILDPH. If I can... Uh, yes. Sorry, Sorry Dr. Nathan. Yeah, if I can Go interject ahead. as well, just in terms of where we are with uh, pH related to ILD in terms of treatment, you know, we have all these uh, therapies that are approved for uh, PAH group one pulmonary arterial hypertension and 
everyone has kind of dabbled with group three to see if they might be effective for group three. And there have been uh, small series, retrospective looks. Um, Lisa mentioned the step study. Um, but more recently, uh, there have been a couple of studies that I think are worthwhile mentioning in addition to this one. The one was the, the RISA RP study of rear cigarette, which unfortunately was not only negative, but was harmful. But then very recently, the increased study of inhaled troprostanol that hasn't been published yet, but I, I was privileged to present this data at, for the ATS uh, webinar just last month, and that was a positive study uh, using inhaled troprostanol. So um, I think that um, that um, certainly kind of opens the door and shows us that targeting pulmonary hypertension associated with interstitial lung disease is really a worthy target. And certainly our hope, and based on the data that we are seeing from inhaled nitric oxide, that appears to hopefully be another modality that we'll have to offer these patients, whereas typically we haven't had anything to offer these patients previously. Perfect. So on those, you know, coattails of that explanation, why consider inhaled nitric oxide? What is the sort of uh, mechanism of action that's at the back of our minds or where is the thought process of coming of using this drug? Because as I'm sure we all know, the half-life is super short. Uh, that's sometimes been a challenge. The delivery is a challenge. And then the mechanism of action can sometimes overlap with other potential therapies. So why consider inhaled nitric oxide as opposed to other treatments? Mm -hmm. Well, I think... Uh, uh, sorry, Lisa, do you want to go first? Oh, uh, I'll start and then fill in what, what I'll leave off. Um, it, it's essentially um, we're looking at repurposing uh, therapies that we already have. We have um, a therapy present and a population that it may be useful in. It's portable. It can be integrated with the oxygen system. And that may be especially important as pH uh, appears to be more prevalent or apparent with exercise. May improve functional capacity, shortness of breath, enhance uh, activities of daily living, and uh, it it also allows us to use this uh, therapy in patients who are on more oxygen and maybe more severe. So we don't have a lot of studies that allow patients with uh, an increased severity of disease. So this is really an underserved population. I, th I think if I may add to that, I think uh, as a pulmonary community, we haven't taken as much advantage of the inhaled route for interstitial lung disease like we have for other diseases like COPD. And uh, the you mentioned the very short half-life, which actually is advantageous in terms of any systemic toxicity or adverse events. And I think the other nice advantage of inhaled nitric oxide is that it does give us potentially two shots on goal. It can treat or ameliorate the pulmonary hypertension, but it can also potentially improve VQ matching and uh, you know help with oxygenation purposes. And we have some data to suggest, and I think Lisa will talk to that a little bit later on in the discussion. Okay. Thank you so much for that explanation, Dr. Nathan. Dr. Gillies, in this study, um, uh, is a phase 2B clinical trial, and, and it's for patients with fibrosing interstitial lung disease who are on oxygen therapy, and patients are either randomized to pulse inhaled nitric oxide um, or placebo to test the efficacy. Um, could you explain to us how pulsed inhaled nitric oxide was administered to the patients in this trial? Sure. So... <clears throat> So we use a device called the Inopulse device, and um, I'll hold this up for you. So hopefully you can see uh, the device. It's um, it's sort of book size. You can see my hands here. It's book size. It's about two and a half pounds in weight. Um, and then what happens is you've um, uh, patients will get a uh, a cylinder, and so in this cylinder is the uh, nitric oxide gas. And in a placebo control study, there'll be, this will be placebo. It'll just be nitrogen. And it's put into the uh, cartridge holder and then shut. Um, and um, the patients, it's very, very simple to use. So the patients can see um, sort of two bars here. You, you, the, the one on the left here is the battery. So they can see, um, you know, how well charged the device is. So 
Uh, they plug it in overnight, charges up, uh, and then the battery life will uh, display here and they can just wear it during the day and monitor that. And then on the other side um, is, the, um, uh, is the actual drug level. Um, so there's no, if I just press this again, so there's no, there's no actual light here because this is a dummy cartridge, but that would be green just like the um, battery. And then that would slowly trickle down uh, while the canister empties and then the patient knows when they're near the end of the, um, of the treatment. And then, um, and then the nice thing about it is you've got, um, you know, your uh, cannula, nasal cannula, and uh, you just plug it into the uh, device and then attached to the nasal cannula is this uh, additional cannula. So it's a triple lumen. And this third lumen attaches to the patient's oxygen. So whatever oxygen device they're using. And then they've got the oxygen and the nitric oxide. And then the beauty is the two nitric oxide doesn't mi mix with any of the oxygen coming in from the uh, oxygen supply because they're all obviously separate uh, lumens for those. So, so this is the device. It's, um, it is pulsed. And um, it's activated during the inhalation, the early inhalation uh, portion of the breathing cycle um, and um, uh, delivers very accurate uh, amounts of uh, nitric oxide. And depending on uh, the respiratory rate and depth of breathing, it'll make sure the patient gets exactly the amount of nitric oxide that we, uh, we want the device to deliver for that patient. So, um, so that's the device. And um, so how often does that cartridge have to be changed by the patient? Because there was an eight-week blinded part of the study. So how often would a patient on average have to change that cartridge? Yeah, it's a great question. So the uh, doses that we're using or did use in this trial and will be in our phase three program, um, the patient will go through one cartridge uh, about every 24 hours. So um, um, and they get shipped, um, you know, a bunch of these cartridges and, uh, and they can just replace them. Uh, each day, and then and then once they're running short of cartridges, we we refill them with a, another batch of cartridges. Mm -hmm. Okay, and um, the nitric oxide, uh, I guess the rate at which it's pulsed, or when patients get the pulse, is dependent on the concentration or the dose that you want them to receive. Is that correct? Correct. So um, in the study that we're uh, about to talk about, we used um, thirty micrograms per kilogram. Um, and um, in a subsequent cohort that uh, Dr. Nathan will present at ATS next month, uh, we used a, a slightly higher dose, 45. Um, and both of those doses, um, literally uh, one cartridge will last a patient uh, for 24 hours about. So, Okay. Dr. Nathan, could you talk a little bit about the study design? Um, it was a randomized control study with patients randomized either to INO at the dose that uh, Hunter mentioned versus placebo. And as you'll see, for, uh, 41 subjects, I believe it was 23 got active uh, NO versus 18 got placebo. And it was over the course of eight weeks. Uh, so um, then patients were given the option of entering open label phase of the study. And during the open label phase, there was the option also to increase from the NO uh, at, at 30 up to 45 um, and after a period of around eight weeks so that the placebo, the former placebo arm um, could get a chance to get acclimated to the 30 and then both groups were given the option of going up to, to 45 depending on how they were doing. Got it. So this question four is now uh, more like questions four, five, and six in one. So I'll, I'll point each one uh, to uh, separate study authors. So what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria you guys set for the study? And what I was personally curious about in Divya was too, is, and Dr. Danoff as well, so I think all of us are very curious to know, is why were the patients not required to have a right heart catheterization uh, for inclusion? Because you know how there's data to suggest that that may impact the accuracy of pH uh, diagnosis. So I'll, I'll tackle that one, and uh, I'll let Hunter and Lisa chime in afterwards. The, the basic inclusion criteria were um, FEC greater than 40%. There wasn't a DL criteria, um, and um, they had to be on oxygen. So, you know, to hook up the nitric uh, wasn't a big deal, just the added device, but they were on supplemental oxygen already. This question comes up all the time, though, why they didn't need a right heart cath, and um, you know, if you talk to folks in the pH community, and I kind of toggle between ILD and pH, 
the PH folks are, are very uh, kind of wedded and anchored to right heart cath to make the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, and rightfully so. The diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension is a hemodynamic diagnosis. Uh, the criteria to call PH have recently been changed at the last uh, World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension. But um, when, you, when you cath a patient, you're getting uh, one picture in time. Uh, you're getting one measurement. The patient's resting. They might have been NPO from the night before. And so um, even though it's a way to make the diagnosis, there's a certain amount of variability around that. You know, if the right atrial pressure is two because they've been MPO for 14 hours and, and the wedge pressure is 14, then when the right atrial pressure goes up to six or eight, maybe the wedge pressure becomes 18. I think um, ECHO is a, a very good screening tool for pulmonary hypertension. And I think ECHO technology has changed over the last 10, 20 years so that we can get a, a pretty good idea. Firstly, is there any LV dysfunction accompanying it? Is there any uh, right ventricular dilatation or um, other evidence of pulmonary hypertension? So I think we're getting better and better at, at, at ECHO. Now, I think we're very careful in this to say that these aren't patients with pulmonary hypertension. Uh, the wording is chosen very um, very specifically to say that they're at risk of pulmonary hypertension, but even then there were some patients who weren't at risk who might have had low probability echoes. Um, and I think for the ILD, uh, so if you want to look at it this way, uh, you could say that we enriched the population for a pulmonary vascular phenotype, patients who may be at risk of pulmonary vascular disease. We're not, we're not very specific about saying pulmonary hypertension. But one thing I would say about uh, pH in the context of ILD is if you've got a patient lying in the cath lab and they're quiet and rested, they might not have resting pulmonary hypertension. But as soon as you walk many of these patients, they do develop pulmonary hypertension. So to me, it's less important to know exactly what the mean PA pressure is or what the pulmonary vascular resistance is. As long as they feel better and do better and they enrich for a pulmonary vascular phenotype, then I think we can, uh, in, in this population, forego the need for right heart cath but be very careful not to call it pulmonary hypertension. We can call it pulmonary vascular phenotype or whatever else we want to call it. So uh, that was the reason that uh, we went with the echo. It was by intent. I think, um, especially if you look at ILD patients, uh, many of them are elderly. Uh, sometimes they or their physicians don't want to have a right heart cath. And so I think this kind of lends itself to ultimately, as we move through the phase three program and hopefully get an approval for this, that patients can get on uh, treatment without necessarily going through a right heart cath. Right. So, uh, Dr. Danoff, um, would you mind coming in with me on this question? So, we discussed about endpoints and the importance of having endpoints that are uh, important. Uh, they're sort of patient-centric. So, is physical activity, you know, how is it defined? What is moderate? What is vigorous? And then, why were the current endpoints explored as they were? And Dr. Danoff, if you don't mind weighing in as we uh, get the authors to come in. To sure, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm certainly going to defer to the authors regarding the decision about how they define the endpoints, because I think that that's a very important point in thinking about this study and understanding how the study fits in with the landscape of therapies for ILD. Um, I think that your point is very well taken. You know, we often use... Um, uh, physiologic measures, uh, decrease in FEC for ILD trials, um, but truly getting at, um, at outcome measures that are relevant to patients is, is obviously sort of desirable. We, we look at physiologic measures thinking that they're surrogate measures that might predict things that are important to patients, like how much activity can I do? How long am I likely to live? Um, I think that it is, um, you know, one of the issues that's come up quite frequently in many of the um, therapeutic trials in ILD is actually identifying the right, um, the right endpoint, the endpoint that actually measures what it is that you're you're interested in finding out. And um, I'm actually very interested to hear from the authors about how they actually decided to use this and what their concerns were or what their thoughts were regarding, um, you know, validation of the endpoint, uh, which, you know, is a somewhat new endpoint. So I'm, I'm curious to hear their, their thoughts about, about how this was selected and how exactly, particularly this, um, the, the vigorous um, physical activity was defined. 
Well, uh, you know, starting out uh, in, in full disclosure, when the study was designed, we had a bunch of exploratory endpoints that we were going to take a look at, and uh, actigraphy was one of those endpoints. And then when uh, we saw the signal that we got from actigraphy, uh, that was the endpoint that we focused on. And I have to say, I think we lucked out, to be quite honest, because, Sonia, as you alluded to, uh, we look at FVC, uh, we look at six-minute walk, and that's actually been one of the uh, criticisms of the FVC, even though that's been well-validated now as a, a, a very good surrogate, I think, for the, some of the drugs that we have approved, the antifibrotics. Um, the patients don't feel the FVC. They don't know what the FVC is necessarily. Um, the six-minute walk has been used in pretty much all the PAH clinical trials, if not the primary endpoint, then certainly deeply embedded in time to clinical worsening, which includes six-minute walk, and most patients hit clinical worsening by a change in their six-minute walk. The six-minute walk gives us prognostic information in PAH. It also gives us prognostic, progno prognostic information in IPF and ILD in general. And we think it is a surrogate for what patients are capable of doing, but it doesn't actually tell us what patients actually do. And if you think about what's important to us and certainly to the FDA, it's how patients uh, feel, function, and survive. Uh, survival is an easy one. That's, uh, you know, patients are dead or alive. How they uh, feel is based on patient-reported outcomes, but how they function is really uh, something that we haven't wrapped our heads around as yet. But I think with advancements in technology, we now have the ability to actually measure how they function once they're outside the clinic. If you think of the six-minute walk as a surrogate for how they function, it's really just that. It's, it's a, a sterile environment within the hospital, a long corridor, everyone has to be quiet. And it's pretty good. As, as you know, I'm a defender of the six-minute walk, uh, and I like it. It's, I think it has a role. But I think actigraphy takes it a step beyond. To me, it's, it's going to emerge, hopefully and possibly, as the gold standard of patient function outside the clinic. And I think we all very concerned about what patients can do outside the hospital environment. And so I think it's um, going to emerge. It has been um, looked at in other cardiology uh, and cardiovascular studies as an endpoint. I think, um, you know, we're all starting to get a feel for it because it's uh, emerging technology. And I think as we do more studies looking at actigraphy, we hopefully will get more comfortable with it as, as an endpoint. Uh, Hunter, Lisa, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Sure. Yes, Steve, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. So, and I think if you look at these two um, endpoints, they, they are looking at slightly different things. Um, and so there was an interesting study that came out of Germany a while back um, in IPF patients, and they categorized their six-minute walk uh, as to those who walked more than 400 meters, those that walked between 300 and 400, and those that walked less than 300. Um, and then they looked at their activity uh, in those three categories. And the activity in patients who walk more than 400 or 300 to 400 was much the same. But once they were walking less than 300, they really dropped off the cliff as far as activity is concerned. So, so I think that's why this endpoint was so sensitive in this uh, population of ours, because their, their activities of daily living are really limited. Um, and so this becomes a very sensitive endpoint when you're monitoring it continuously. Um, so, yeah. So um, just a really quick uh, unscheduled break. Uh, can we move back to question four? And we just wanted to show our audiences uh, some of the tables that are actually helpful to understand characteristics of the study uh, before we move forward with some questions. These are the uh, sort of levels of uh, physical activity intensities that were used and then the correlating everyday activities that I think uh, Dr. Nathan was trying to point out. And these are important to us to figure out what's relevant to patients in daily life. Uh, the next slide, uh, if we can move to, will show us the patient selection that we, I was wondering if Dr. Lancaster maybe you quickly want to go into. Anything you particularly want to point out about especially the ones that, uh, you know, uh, finally entered the trial, uh, the 19 on one side and 13 on the open label side? Uh, the uh... Right. I, I think one of the key points as you look at the numbers of patients that uh, stayed with the study was uh, one element of tolerance and compliance. Uh, in general, patients were uh, able to stick with this. And if you look at the average 
use somewhere around uh, 15 to 16 hours for most patients and even patients using it up to 24 hours. Uh, in general, the comments were uh, surprisingly more like than uh, dislike of the apparatus uh, for something that requires um, uh, daily use. For those patients who were not on CPAP, uh, many wore the device with sleep. Um, for patients that were on CPAP therapy because uh, an uh, adapter had not been created at the uh, at the time of the trial to be able to utilize it during sleep. They wore it during the day. And surprisingly, uh, many of the comments were positive and those patients stuck with it as well as those that were able to wear it during sleep. So that's, I think that's an important part of chronic lung diseases or chronic disease in general is, you know, ability to stay on with the therapy. So that's, mm -hmm. I think, encouraging. Um, Moving on to the so next slide. Can, can I just ask a quick follow-up on that, Lisa? So yes. was the acceptance of the device um, equal or similar between the, um, the placebo arm and the active arm? I believe that was. Steve, do you know those numbers? Or Hunter? I don't have those numbers in my head. Yes, I believe it was much the same. I mean, the, um, you know, the, the discontinuation rate due to um, disliking the device or being uncomfortable with, with the device was, was actually quite low. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, it was similar between the two groups. Yeah, so um, I think that there were two patients in each arm who had early termination. So I think to, to Lisa's point, it was generally well-tolerated and well-liked. I think it also goes to the point that if you have a sick group of patients who are symptomatic, they're going to and be more adherent than other patients who might be asymptomatic. I don't know if it was actually a good point. I hadn't thought of this before. Even if patients um, were not feeling better, they might have been motivated because they knew that they would be eligible for open-label therapy if they weren't getting mm. the real thing mm -hmm. you know, out of the gate. Right. So and the very was, short to eight-week window to wait. Right. I was going to point out with this table uh, with the baseline uh, demographics that if you look at the amount of oxygen use, you know, during a day, it's uh, about 23 hours in the inhaled group and then 20 hours in the placebo group, which is, you know, close to what you would see in real life, but at the same time, uh, comparable. So I'm assuming that if they were able to use oxygen for that much time, they use the devices on both sides comparably as well. One thing in this table uh, that we wanted to ask you and have clarifications on is, you mentioned that people with intermediate to high probability of pH on the echo uh, were about 65% in the treatment group and 78% in the placebo group. So what about the rest of them? Did they, were they low probability? Were they indeterminate? And how does that impact your findings? They had to have been low probability or possibly even uh, uh, normal. Uh, so, yeah, you know, ECHO is a good screen, but it's not uh, the sensitivity and specificity are, you know, not as good as we want. Certainly, ECHO can both underestimate as well as overestimate what the pressures are. Um, so, um, you know, there could well have been patients who had intermediate to high probability that didn't have pH and on the other end of the spectrum, there could have been patients with low probability who did have pH. I think one of the things I would say, though, is if you look at the DL, which was 30%, that represents a population that is enriched for pulmonary vascular disease or pulmonary vascular component to their disease. Okay. So, Divya, if I may ask a couple of questions from the chat that have come up. Sure, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Right here. So, um, particular question that's come up is in the undifferentiated group, unclassifiable group, um, it would be hard to know what those ILDs were. And I, I'm not even sure the numbers are big enough to uh, pull teeth over, but any sense of what those patients were, those six patients in the unclassifiable ILD groups? I don't think we do. I think unclassifiable, unfortunately, is emerging as a distinct entity. <laughs> yep. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, we always have a wastebasket term, uh, used to be IPF, now we've honed it down to unclassifiable. I, I really don't think it makes much of a difference because I think as patients advance with progressive fibrotic disease, they all kind of merge and follow a similar course towards the end. 
Uh, we've seen this with some of the uh, antifibrotic clinical trials, the inbuilt study, for example. And we see this once they start to develop uh, pH as well. In fact, there have been some papers. I remember one in particular that compared the course of patients with NSIP versus IPF. And as we know, NSIP generally, it's a kinder and gentler course than IPF. But what this paper shows, probably going back 15, 20 years, was that once the DL is 30% or less, they follow exactly the same course. So I think certainly with advanced fibrosis, I think we can lump them together and study them together. We've shown it here. It was shown in the inbuilt study as well. And I think as we move forward with clinical trials in fibrotic lung disease, we're probably going to see more of this lumping together. So the, the only thing that I would uh, just bring up and just get your input on, uh, Steve, is the potential that the distribution of disease may actually be different in your unclassifiable patients compared to your IPF patients. I mean, you know, certainly um, you're using something which is, which is a vasodilator um, and you might, could make the case that the that if there is different regions that are affected by the, um, uh, you know, especially by VQ mismatch, that that might actually impact the um, the effect of the drug. Do I do you have plans to do a little bit more analysis about distribution of fibrosis on on your patient populations? No, we actually don't. But you bring up a very good point, Sonia, that I give a lot of thought to and haven't completely. I can't completely answer that. Um, and we have, you know, many years ago, I looked at um, distribution of ventilation and perfusion in different kinds of lung disease. Because as you know, with transplant, we get ventilation perfusion scans on all of our patients. So that gave me the ability to look at patients uh, with and without pulmonary hypertension to see if there was a difference in the distribution of ventilation and perfusion, but really uh, couldn't show a difference. But your point's well taken. If you doesn't make a difference if it's chronic HP and it's more upper lobe disease versus IPF, more basilar and peripheral. And uh, it might, but I'll, t- I'll tell you something, and you, you uh, uh, Lisa's probably seen this, you've probably seen this. When we look at the path from an IPF patient, and you look at relatively normal areas, you can still see significant vasculopathic changes. So I'm not sure that the morphology on CT uh, would necessarily tell us exactly what's happening at a vascular level. Um, and so it's a, it's a very interesting hypothesis. And certainly that's where group three pH differs from group one, where with group one idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, it's diffuse, it's all the same throughout. So certainly something to, to bear in mind moving forward. But to answer your question, no, we, we don't have plans to, to, to look at the morphology. It's actually something we did do in the RISE RP study. When um, we uh, got the negative results on that, we went back and we uh, got as many CAT scans as we did to see if there was some kind of morphologic signal why patients did worse. And... Um, we actually have that paper in submission at the moment. It might actually be with Chess. So this is a plug for it, for Chess to look kindly on that paper. Um, maybe I shouldn't say anything about it, and then Chess will go ahead and accept it, and everyone can read about it. <laughs> but anyway, it's a it's a it's a very good point, um, and uh, I think it's something going forward uh, that uh, needs to be looked at, but uh, wasn't specifically looked at in the context of this clinical trial. Steve, I think also it brings up the point of drug delivery and uh, exactly where is the drug going in this uh, uh, diseased lung population with fibrotic lung disease? Is it going to areas that uh, have better ventilation and would ultimately benefit from improved perfusion? I think that point is a very important one because, uh, you know, the Anything we inhale takes a path of least resistance and goes to the best areas of the lung. And so there's sound physiologic basis to believe that inhaled NO should improve ventilation perfusion matching, no matter the distribution of disease, be it upper lobe, peripheral, or more central. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Nathan. Um, we're going to move on for the sake of time to some of the results slides from the paper. Um, so we'll move on to question five, and uh, maybe we can get Dr. Gillies to come in and comment about um, 
the results of the studies. So um, uh, next slide, please. On um, table two discusses um, the actigraphy parameters in, in both table and uh, graph format. Dr. Gillies, could you take us through the results? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, and so what you see here is um, the activity measure um, and the uh, table at the top, you've got moderate to vigorous physical activity. Um, but just to, to clarify that none of these IPF patients uh, or fibrotic interstitial lung disease patients achieve uh, vigorous activity. So this is all moderate um, activity of the sort of three to six mets that you would have seen on, the, uh, on a previous table. Um, uh, it also includes overall activity and then non-sedentary activity. But the MVPA was the um, uh, category of activity that we were interested in. Um, and you'll see that the um, inhaled nitric oxide group uh, improves their MVPA by around about 8%, but the placebo group deteriorates uh, by about 26%. So, um, so a, a big difference between the groups there. Um, and then an overall activity is lower uh, in the placebo group at the end of the study uh, compared to baseline. Um, the, um, you know, non-sedentary activity, uh, not really much of, a, much of a change there. And I think that's to be expected. One question I had about the results was in the study, um, it was stated that uh, not all 41 of the patients that were included in the trial um, were had... Uh, analyzable, I guess, uh, data from on the actigraphy at baseline and then eight weeks later. When the analysis was performed, was that done on the patients who had data that was uh, analyzable or, or on the entire population? Well, so we, um, you know, we asked the patients uh, or the subjects to, to wear the activity monitor for as, uh, as, as much time as they could. Um, but um, when we looked at the data, we referred to patients being compliant, and we defined compliance as more than 10 hours of, of wear of the activity monitor per day. Um, and so if we had subjects who, you know, uh, were not compliant in, in wearing the activity monitor, um, those subjects were excluded. Um, and so that's why the, the, the numbers are slightly different compared to the, uh, the overall sample size. Okay. All right, thank you. So we'll go on to the next slide and look at some of the other results from the study. Um, the next table that's um, being presented shows the, the moderate vigorous physical activity data in a different way. So for the patients in the intervention arm, uh, three or 23% had greater than 15% improvement from baseline. But I also want to point out that five or 39% had greater than 15% decline. I just want to ask the authors if anybody has comment on this table. If not, we'll move on to the next one and talk about oxygen desaturation and uh, six minute walk distance. I can tackle this and I'll leave oxygen desaturation and the walk distance to uh, Lisa. <laughs> uh, but I think it's nice to see a respond analysis like this uh, because MVPA is uh, still relatively new. We don't know what the minimally important difference is, mm -hmm. but we had to pick a point and 15% uh, seemed reasonable. Uh, the numbers are small, but I think the trend is there, three versus zero. None of the placebo patients had any improvement. So there's a win on the top end in terms of patients gaining benefit, but there's also a win on the bottom end because even though five patients did have a decline who were on INO, that's... Uh, is about half the number of patients because 10 on placebo, and remember it was 10 of 18, this is 5 of 21, um, 10 patients on placebo had a similar decline of 15%. So benefit on the top end and benefit on, on the bottom end. So I think it's nice to contextualize it this way. I will just make another point around these results because we present it as percent change and percent uh, difference placebo corrected, but what does that mean in terms of minutes in a day? And it might not sound a lot, but this translates to 15 to 20 minutes of moderate activ activity. And 15 minutes in a 24-hour period at first glance might not seem a lot. But if you think about it, what can 15 minutes give a patient? It gives a patient the opportunity to go up and down the stairs two or three times a day, whereas they might, might not have done that before. 
It gives them an opportunity to walk to the to the, the mail, to collect the mail, and other things that they might enjoy that are very important for their quality of life. So I think you have to look at it in that context in terms of a sick population and what 15 to 20 minutes extra of moderate activity can do to enhance their quality of life on a daily basis. Could I just ask if we could go back to the prior slide because I, I've been looking at this data and really puzzling over it. You know, obviously a big part of what is driving these results is that 25% decline in MVPA in the placebo group. Mm -hmm. And that was a decline that took place over an eight-week period. I, I guess I'm still struggling with trying to understand whether you would have expected to see that degree of decline in the placebo arm um, or whether there's some other um, factor that I'm missing here. You know, I think it goes to the point, Sonia, that we just haven't studied patient, patients with the severity of disease in a meaningful fashion before. And we know once these patients get, you know, later on in, in their disease course, they behave differently to the patients we typically put in the IPF clinical trials who have mild to moderate disease. So um, uh, perhaps a bit of a surprise over the course of two months, but I think I attribute it to the fact that this was a pretty sick group of patients going mm -hmm. in. And I think, Steve, um, you know, also, as you say, this is a, a relatively new endpoint, so we, we don't understand the natural history of it in sort of untreated patients. But, um, but the, uh, the reassuring thing is in the um, uh, data that will be presented at ATS next month, we've reproduced this. So we know that the placebo group will deteriorate over this short period of time. So it, we're starting to understand it better now, um, which, is, which is good. And, and that gets to one other question I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind, Hunter, is the impact of the placebo cartridge on inhaled oxygen does that change the fraction of inhaled oxygen? Uh, no, um, it does not. So the patients uh, remain on whatever um, flow of oxygen they were on before. Um, and um, so, so, no, it doesn't impact it. I mean, if they, if they were to change their flow subsequent to um, starting in the study, we assume that's due to their, their disease, but, um, um, but, but no, we're not aware of them changing just because they're on a placebo cartridge. Divya, you're, you're muted. I can see you moving, but we're not hearing anything. <laughs> Thank you, Sorry. Baird. Um, we need to move on to um, the data on the um, six-minute walk distance and oxygen saturation. So we'll, here we go. Yeah, so Dr. Lancaster, do you want to briefly talk about the data on this slide, and then uh, we'll move on to the open label extension phase of the study. Sure. Let's start by looking at the saturation nadir. So patients who were on INO versus uh, patients in the placebo, patients on INO started out with an average SAT at baseline of 85.2% and on placebo of 85.5%. And then if we go to the SAT, the average saturation at uh, eight weeks, that's the number that's being shown here with the placebo group decreasing by 1.4% in their nadir on their walk on average and the INO group increasing uh, granted small by 0.3%. The relative oxygen desaturation is a delta from the highest SAT that's measured either right at the start or right before the start of the six-minute walk to the nadir. And the placebo group had a 10.5% uh, increase with, uh, in comparison to their delta at the beginning to their delta at the end of the eight weeks in comparison to the INO that had a 9.3% decrease. There was a small increase in the six-minute walk distance. Granted, this is only an eight-week period and small number of patients, and an increase in the distance desaturation product, which is a uh, the distance multiplied by the saturation meter during the six-minute walk test. Um, interestingly, all oxygen measures were moving in the same direction in favor of the treatment arm, 
And I think the curious finding that we started uh, noticing that I think really needs to be explored further in phase three study is practically we saw a few patients decreasing on their own their home O2 flow rates with exertion by about one to two liters per minute, yet able on therapy, but yet able or active drug, yet able to keep their saturations in the 90s. So I think that was just in a curious observation um, that really needs to be explored and examined further. Interesting. So I think going forward... Sorry, Lisa, if I, a, a great explanation. If I can just add, because I can see how this table is confusing. I just want to underscore the point that the negative number for the INO is actually an improvement and the positive number for the uh, placebo is actually a deterioration. So I just want to make sure that the audience understands that. Good point. I think uh, the point that you made earlier about understanding your uh, new endpoint and understanding what the uh, MCID is and how that translates to your established endpoints in the ILD world, I think that I think that'll be uh, important to understand the actual implications uh, along with higher patient numbers. So uh, we'll quickly move to question six, and uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this so we can leave some time for questions, but you guys had an open-label extension phase. So uh, what, was the, what were the findings? What was this phase about? And uh, did the treatment effect change based on the severity of either the lung disease or the um, documented severity of the pH? I'll tackle this. Oh, Hunter, you want to go? Oh, uh, sure. I can. Um, I can uh, address that. So, yeah. So, in the open label phase, now this was the um, uh, you know an interesting finding because, um, as you've seen in the um, placebo control portion, the placebo group was deteriorating, um, and there there is another slide with I think a, a bar chart of of the results here. But the there we go. So the um, uh, you'll see that the, the active in the, in the red, that's the INO group, and then the placebo group in the blue. Um, and then you see when they cross over to the open label, the, the placebo group stops deteriorating. Um, you know, so I think that's another positive finding that uh, you, know, you cross the patients over from placebo to active, and they, they sort of correct their course, if you will, and uh, their activity is held stable as opposed to deteriorating. So... Um, so, yes, I think in summary, that's really what we found in the open label uh, part of the study. Okay, so we'll move on to question seven. And I want to bring Dr. Danoff uh, in on this question as well. I think the authors did a really great job of reviewing the limitations of the study. And I do want to give them a chance to talk about the limitations, but I also want to bring in Dr. Danoff to to. Uh, hear her ideas about about the limitations. Well, you know, I, I think we've touched on a couple of the issues that are obviously um, need a little bit further clarification. Um, I, I think that as an early trial, it certainly would have been nice if we had um, um, had cath data on this patient population. And I absolutely understand your point, uh, Steve, but I think that it also kind of leaves an, an open question in terms of uh, the impact of the inhaled nitric oxide. And I think that the other um, obvious concern is, is using um, the actigraphy as an endpoint without having a strong signal from another um, marker of uh, that that's a more traditional uh, um, endpoint used in these kinds of studies. But obviously, this is a fairly small study, and it's a you know an early study. So I feel sure that um, studies that are coming down the line will have um, you know will address some of these limitations. I I am still very perplexed by the drop in um, the uh, the higher level exercise in the placebo group, um, and would really you know, love to um, think through that a little bit more um, and and have that sort of addressed in a slightly more detailed fashion. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see this as percents of baseline, um, but I think that Steve's point is also very good. It's important to know what the absolute numbers are uh, because that obviously is also going to impact um, 
the the significance of the of the changes that that you're seeing. Um, but I, you know, I, I absolutely congratulate you on a, you know, a clever study and, and a study that I think is, is very, um, you know, it, it certainly um, suggests that there's, there's there, there, and we need to find out more about what there is. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. Thank I'm going to so give much. a chance for the to the authors to briefly answer those um, points that Dr. Danoff brought up. And then after that, we have some great questions from the audience that I think we should really try to address. So um, we'll, we'll um, hear from the authors and then move on to the questions from the audience. Okay, I'm happy to uh, offer a rebuttal. I feel like I'm in a pro-con debate now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, to the point about right heart cath, uh, you know, they're nice to haves and they have to haves. We know that we know it's well worked out how nitric oxide works. Uh, it's a vasodilator. It's been shown acutely in many studies. It's not a, a novel agent that we don't know what the mechanism of action is. So I don't view right heart cath as a have to have. And I think by going with echo, that enabled us to cast a wider net and still show a positive outcome. So um, I'm not sure if it would have added to the study in terms of our understanding of the pathophysiology, to be quite honest. Um, and I think it enables and sets the stage for moving on to a cohort two, which we've done, and to cohort three, uh, which is about or has just gotten underway in actual fact, where we can take these patients and not have the added hurdle and burden of having to put them through a right heart cat. Uh, I guess my, my question, and uh, I don't know if uh, Sonia's going to have an opportunity to rebut my rebuttal, but why do we need to even know what their pressures are as long as the patients do better and feel better? Who cares if their mean PA pressure is 22 or 25? I think it's the end results that, that's important. And that goes to actigraphy as well in terms of, um, you know, what it means. And I think if you buy into the concept that, well, how patients function at home is the most important thing, um, it's a new technology. It's kind of like uh, if you had a choice between FEC as a surrogate of mortality or mortality itself, you would take mortality itself as the endpoint. So by the same token, I'd argue for function, uh, I'll go back to the point that I tried to make initially, that actigraphy might emerge as the gold standard of how patients truly function outside the clinic. Got it. And I guess I would love to give Dr. Danoff a rebuttal to the rebuttal to the rebuttal. But I feel like I would invite you guys, without having an authority to do so, to consider a point-counterpoint in the journal, uh, only because we're short of time. But thank you for, uh, for helping with that. Peter is going to tell me uh, to not do these anymore, since I'm handing out invitations for no reason. Well, uh, I have questions here from the audience, uh, and uh, there are a few very interesting ones, so we'll um, give you guys a quick rapid-fire uh, opportunity to address those. So the first one uh, is, you know, with the actigraphy being a promising patient-centered endpoint, pending MCID um, determination and so on and so forth, were there any other sort of patient-reported data, just quality-of-life questionnaires that were collected, and if not, are there pl plans to do that in Phase 3? Sure, Steve. You want me to answer that? Yeah, Hunter. I'm, I'm, if you, I'm, I'm calling a friend. Hunter, can you help us out there? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, so yes, we did. We, um, you know, we looked at the um, uh, St George's respiratory questionnaire and the uh, UCSD shortness of breath questionnaire. Um, and uh, there really wasn't uh, much of a change. There was a small positive movement uh, in those questionnaires. But there are two important things to consider here. One was the, uh, the dose that we used. So it was INO30, and it was an eight-week study. Um, the cohort two, which uh, Dr. Nathan will present next month, um, used a higher dose, INO45, and um, it was a 16-week study. And, you know, to, just to get back to some of the points that came up during the talk, um, the number one, the placebo group in, in that study also deteriorated, um, and the INO group held stable. And yet now in, in this cohort with a higher dose, longer duration, both the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire showed a, a clinically meaningful change, and they met the MCID for the impacts and activity domain in the St. George's, and also met the MCID for the UCSD shortness of breath. And it absolutely mimicked the placebo and active group. So 
the placebo group deteriorated in quality of life and the INO group held steady. Um, and so in the phase three, we'll be using those same questionnaires and we'll be looking to um, anchor them against changes in activity. So, so yeah. Got it. And then hopefully we'll have a longer follow-up data as well um, by then. Compared to Trapasanil, uh, how's uh, INO advantages or disadvantages? Uh, going back to the increased study, which, as I mentioned, was a positive study, um, I think that there, if things go well and both are available to our patients, I think it's fantastic for us and fantastic for the patients because it gives us choice. Uh, we've seen in PAH where we have, at last count, I think 13 different medications approved, and that enables us to you know, try different things and different combinations and uh, have really moved the needle for that disease. In IPF, we have two antifibrotics, and that gives us options. Patients don't tolerate the one or are more comfortable for, with their lifestyle with one versus the other. It's the option of choice. I think this is such a big population and such a huge unmet need that even if both come to market, there's plenty of room for both, if not more. Some patients might elect to go on inhaled troposinol. Other patients might elect to go on inhaled nitric oxide. And so I think it's just more options for patients. And I, I see the two working uh, in synergy rather than opposed to one another, much like I do uh, perfenidone and nintenonib. I think there's room for, for plenty. If you look at you know, some of the numbers I, I, I mentioned, let's say 15% low end, 40% high end, and then you look at the universe of ILD, that's a huge population. If you look at the PAH world, uh, maybe the estimates are 15,000, 25,000 in the US. If you look at ILD, IPF alone is 150 to 200,000, and that's probably about one third of all ILD. So the ILD pH or at risk of pH population kind of dwarfs the PAH population. So I see both as needed for this particular population. That's fair. Um, and continuing on with that, any sense on uh, how expensive the system would be uh, or how, how does, do we have an idea about cost, cost to the patient, cost for application? I'll definitely boot that one to my friend Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks, Steve. So, uh, I, I mean, I, I can't get ahead of, um, you know, what would happen once the, uh, if, if and when the product gets approved. Um, but, um, uh, but the, you know, the company, I'm sure, will uh, will figure out what is, uh, um, you know, meaningful. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea is to help patients. So we don't want to limit um, any patients being able to get access to drug. But um, I, I can't tell you what the price would be. Fair enough. And uh, before we move on, and I think I'm just morphing this quest, uh, question a bit to close out, is um, different interstitial diseases progress differently. And I think as more patients are enrolled and studied, I think trying to understand how that impacts the results over time, right? Uh, it, any plans to sort of tease that out a little bit more, including impact of antifibrotics, people who are on them, people who are not on them, people who are responding to them, um, any thoughts on that? I can, I can take that. And Lisa, do you want to stab at it? I think all of those um, points are critical and things that we're, we're going to have to think about as, as uh, uh, the phase three uh, gets underway. I think I think our main limitations with the study are mainly in numbers. It's really hard to tell anything when you only have a few of with this particular disease and a few with that particular disease. So I, I think the key is going to be in numbers. Agreed. I'd just, like, I'd just like to add to that. Sorry, I know we're running out of time, but if you go back to PAH, we bundled a bunch of different diseases together with very different outcomes, connective tissue disease, PH, IPAH, uh, heritable, and congenital heart disease, which has a much more benign course than IPAH, for example. We studied them all together we got the drugs approved and now they're available for all of them. I think um, it's, it would be nice to tease it out. I don't know if we'll have the numbers, uh, but I think, as I mentioned, ILDPH, they all tend to behave very similarly. So I don't see it as absolutely needed to try and tease out the different diseases to see if there's one that benefits more than the next. If we have the numbers, we'll do it, but I don't think that should be a limitation. 
Fantastic. I think uh, on behalf of Divya and myself, I really wish you guys the best. Like I said, I was very intrigued by the study. Uh, so glad you explained all these components. Uh, thank you for pushing the field. Uh, glad that we have uh, more coming for uh, patients with uh, pH with uh, um, fibrosing ILDs. Dr. Danoff, thank you for taking time off for guiding us. As always, we appreciate your expert insight in Drs. Nathan Lancaster and Gillies. Um, I hope to see more work from you uh, across the field, especially in the journal. Thank you so much. Everybody have a good day. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye now.